Heavenly Father, it's a privilege to encounter you in your fullness, in your power and strength, in your promise, in your challenge. I just pray that for every heart here, Lord, you would bring all that you have for us. May we encounter you the way that you are longing to be encountered this morning. In your name we pray, amen. Please pray for uh, Father Eric. He's not feeling well today. And um, he is praying for us, even as we're standing, as I'm standing here, as you're sitting there, and um, is with us in spirit. And God willing, he'll be, he'll have enough energy for Oasis tonight. But more importantly, we just want him to be able to rest and, and get well. But he texted me, and, and I know through Jeannie, too, sends his love and his prayer for our service this morning. This morning, we're going to be um, encountering Jesus. Uh, we've leapt forward to chapter 8, and there's a reason for that. We are kind of moving a little bit liberally around the Gospel of John to, to, to raise up some kind of Lenten themes for us. So we'll be moving a little bit. We're going to try to work through John kind of more or less in order, but occasionally we'll move around a little bit. And today, um, we want to address, let Jesus address, a Lenten practice that we often talk about, which is engaging with God's Word. Bible reading in its plainest language. But of course, as you know from hanging around here for a while, uh, the, the Bible, God's Word, is powerful. And reading isn't simply a task, it's, it's an engagement. Bishop Stewart said something that I'm still getting my head around. He said, I want you to have a personal relationship with the Bible. Like, wow, that's, <laughs> that's really a striking way of saying it. But it's true. The word was meant to be eaten. The word was meant to be, well, Jesus says this morning, ab abided in. We're to abide in the word. The word is God's own self to us that we can understand and embrace and abide in. And so um, I wanted to let Jesus' words kind of challenge us this morning on this subject, and that's why we're pondering this in particular. We're gonna be back in chapter eight later on, so I won't give all of the context. It's, it's an incredible section, chapters uh, seven and eight. It's the Festival of Booths, and I won't be distracted in getting into all that now, because I'll have, I'll have fun with that a little bit later. Jesus is in Jerusalem at this point, and he's talking to a throng of Jewish people. This is a festival time. The context here is the festival of booths or Sukkot. Um, and like I say, we'll, we'll study that later. If you have a study Bible, I encourage you to kind of read a little bit about that. But there are a lot of people around this point, a lot of people around. And whenever Jesus goes to Jerusalem, it makes the Jewish authorities very nervous because Jesus just can't comply you know, he just can't conform to expectations. He's got to go meddling around. That's the way they look at it. Of course, Jesus isn't meddling. He's the Lord, right? It's the other way around. But it just feels like that to the Jewish authorities. And so Jesus now is uh, speaking to this wider audience, but he's challenged now by the Jewish authorities on something. And that's what we want to let Jesus speak to us today. Um, there are several sections that will move through in this passage. And the first one is, uh, starts in verse 28, where we're picking up here. When you have seen the, when you, when you have, I'm sorry, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. This is a reference to Jesus being lifted up upon the cross. 
and the cross is where Jesus' most complete revelation is coming to fruition. When you look upon him whom you have pierced, is one prophecy, then you will know. And Jesus has said, when I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. This expression of Jesus being lifted up is so essential to his mission. Jesus came to die. He came to die for our sins, to take our place, to take our punishment, to set us free from the power of death and from the enemy himself, and then to rise up from the dead and ascend into heaven where he is today interceding for us. And so Jesus says, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. There's a revelation of something that Jesus is trying to disclose to, uh, to the Jewish people. And he's saying, I'm not doing this only on my own authority. I'm doing it on the authority of the Father, which is an especially important message for lots of reasons, but in this context, especially for the Jewish people, because they would know who he's talking about. And Jesus is saying, look, I'm doing what I see my Father doing. And Jesus, in the Gospel of John, gives us so many pictures of the intimacy of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The, the intimacy in the triune life comes across in many different flavors. And he says here, he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone. Isn't that a funny thing to hear Jesus say? Well, I was struck when I read this that Jesus says, you have not left me alone. I mean, on the, on the one hand, I want to say, well, duh, you know. But that's not the point. He wasn't stating the obvious. He was speaking in a very human tone here. I don't I think it's quite right to say Jesus was concerned about being alone, but in his human nature, and that human nature he has that, as the author of Hebrews says, is tempted like we are tempted. Jesus could say something that we can embrace. Jesus himself was not left alone. We were just talking about this the other night with some friends. Loneliness, I was in Great Britain, that, that they're diagnosing this now isn't, illness or something like that. The point is that loneliness is uh, such a severe deprivation that to suffer it causes great harm that requires a mental health response. I mean, we've known this for, of course, millennia. But we're living in a very lonely time. Uh, we're living in a time when families are fractured, when, when children don't know where they belong, and, and when technology has yeah, this is to me just a work of the enemy. Technology has inserted itself into that space to further isolate people from each other. And the Lord says, I've got an answer. I've got a response. And it comes right from the very heart of the Trinity. Jesus himself was not left alone. And I think that's a very powerful statement for all of us who are feeling left alone that God does not leave you alone. He did not leave his own son alone. And I always, says Jesus, do the things that are pleasing to him. Then a beautiful relationship? I'm not left alone. I do what pleases him. Such an expression of intimacy. That's what Jesus was wanting to disclose to these Jewish leaders. He was helping them reconnect to their God. He didn't 
say father in a patronizing tone. He was saying, Israel, your vocation is to enjoy intimacy with the Father and I am here to restore you to your vocation. I want you to see what God the Father is really like. I want you to find out what you were called to do again. And many believed him. Now I wanna just say a couple of things there. Um, um, first of all, reading the word Jew in John is a little bit alarming or arresting for, for some folks and it can be a little confusing because in, in John's gospel, Jewish people typically, not always, but typically when John's gospel refers to the Jews, he's talking about mostly the Jewish leadership. And that's a really important comment to make because of course Jesus came to save the Jewish people. He's talking to the Jews, he is a Jew, his followers are Jews, it's all Jewish. So you, you can ask the question, well, why, well, who is Jesus talking to in the Gospel of John? You'll find that when he uses the term Jews, he's typically talking to leaders. That's important because that's what the prophets are doing in the Old Testament very often. The prophets talk to Israel collectively, so it's not like anybody's getting off the hook, so to speak. Jesus is talking to the Jewish people collectively, but the Jewish leadership have an extra special responsibility to lead the people wisely, and they fail all the time. And the prophets in the Old Testament come to alarm the Jewish leaders and to remind them with strong language the, the, the stewardship that they have to lead the people well. That's important because one of the things that Jesus is doing is he is being that leader. And that's why he excites the frustration and jealousy and sinfulness of the Jewish leaders who resent it. So oftentimes, and in here, Jewish, Jesus is especially talking to the Jewish leadership who have gone astray. And this is what's gonna come out now in the next section. Jesus says in the beginning of the first section that we just read, look, faith comes by seeing. When you see the Son of Man lifted up, faith comes by hearing. I hear my Father's voice. So Jesus says now in verse 31, to the Jews who had believed him, and if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. It's a subtle correction. This is starting to, it's starting to ratchet up in momentum here, but it's still a gracious promise. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. See, Jesus says, I'm speaking what the Father speaks. If you abide in that word, my word, you will be my disciples, and then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Isn't it so, what a gospel truth. Is, if we just stop right there, we would say, oh, yes. Do you not want freedom? Is that not a cry of your heart? You can't free yourself and there are just gonna be times in life where that's so abundantly clear. We can go for a long time fooling ourselves, all right, but eventually you're gonna come up against the same roadblock. It's a wall, it's not a roadblock, it's a brick wall. You cannot free yourself, you cannot liberate yourself, you cannot liberate the people you care about. And Jesus says, I will set you free. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and I can set you free. It's why I've come. And you would think, yes, but we're pressing into a different point here. See, to the Jewish leaders especially, they are offended 
And you're like, how could you possibly find that offensive? Well, because when Jesus used the word freedom, he's putting his finger on a nerve. Because if there's one thing that defines the Jewish people, it's they're not slaves. That's, that's at the center of who they are. Do you remember why? Because Jesus, or God the Father, rather, called Moses to take them out of bondage to slavery in Egypt and set them free to be God's people. I mean, that's as close to the heart of a Jewish identity as you can possibly get. We are not slaves, but Jesus, you know, that's only half of it. You're not slaves to Pharaoh. You're worshipers of the living God. Paul will go even farther and say we're slaves to Christ. He's not afraid of that word for himself. And oh boy, the Jewish leadership did not like that. They're like, wait a second. What do you mean we're going to be free? Who do you think you are? We are offspring of Abraham. That's, now you can understand why they, they had that, that response. Remember, they're there at a festival time. So they're there at the Feast of Booths. Now here's what the Feast of Booths is all about. This is from Leviticus, right? This is authored by Moses. Well, God through Moses, where God is disclosing to the Jewish people in the time of Moses why they should be celebrating the Feast of Booths. This is from Leviticus chapter 23, verses 42 to 43. This is the Lord speaking. You shall live in booths for seven days. All that are citizens in Israel, free people, shall live in booths, so that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel live in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. You're not slaves. You dwell with God. You're God's people. And here comes Jesus and said, I'm going to set you free right at the festival of booths. <laughs> Can you understand now why these Jewish leaders are like, what are you, who do you think you are? We, we were believing in you about five minutes ago, but you lost us there, Jesus. Sorry, you know, party's over now. And Jesus said, uh, and they asked him, how is it that you say we will become free? And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. I have no doubt they didn't expect that one coming. He said, look, I'm talking about something completely different here. You're slaves to sin. And you know, Jesus is never one for holding back. He said, the slave does not remain in the house forever. Now, that's an interesting allusion to the, to the booth. I love Sukkot in Jerusalem. Ah, oh, it's wonderful. It's fall time, so it's, you know, temperature's dropping. It's beautiful. And, and everybody who has a balcony or, or some space will build these tabernacles. And they have meals in there, and all the kids color pictures and put them all over the place. And it's such a glorious time. And it's a beautiful time for, uh, for me as a Christian Gentile because the, the other meaning to the Feast of Booze is that it's the Feast of the Ingathering. It's the, when you're bringing in the sheaves. It's a harvest. And it's, the, it's a reference to the Gentiles coming in. Ah, I love it. And Jesus says, yes, you're not going to be there in that booth when you are a slave to sin. And what Jesus came to show the Jewish leadership at this time is that you're wayward. It's just like the prophets told the Jewish leadership when they were following idols back in the Old Testament times. Jesus has come into this context and said, look, people, you are slaves to sin. 
and slaves do not remain in the house forever, but the son remains in the house forever. And if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Jesus is saying this is my house. It is not your house, he's saying to the Jewish leadership. And that's why they did not like him. Jesus is saying, this isn't your house. This isn't your agenda. This isn't your deal. you, You set up money changers in the temple. You're keeping out the very people I want to bring in. I want to bring in the Samaritans and the adulterers and the tax collectors and the lame and the incarcerated and the broken and the wounded and the people who can't get their act together. That's, I love them. They are the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And you set up this other agenda to control your own house in collaboration with the Romans and with your own agenda, and you're keeping out the people I've came to save. I've come to save. And Jesus says, this is my house. That's authority. Jesus says, this is my house. And I have the authority to set people free. And I will not have any authority in this house. And Jesus says in verse 37, I know that you're the offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. It's very sobering. It could have happened in a second. They could have believed Jesus' word. John the Baptist did. John the Baptist said, I want him to increase and I will decrease. I'm so happy that people are following him. Mary did. She said, be it unto me according to your word. When Jesus comes in in that authority, he's doing it to set us free. The Pharisees in their sinfulness thought exactly the opposite. This guy is going to shackle us. This guy is going to clip our wings. Do you see how the enemy is right in there? Do you see how this passage now is moving to the jugular? I speak what I have seen with my father, and you do what you've seen from your father. Oh, it's hard to hear. I mean, because I resonate with that. As a, I'm Adam, you're Adam and Eve. That's what the enemy said from the very beginning. That house that that guy set up for you, there's something wrong with it. That house is going to clip your wings. That's the only way you're going to be in that house. In, in fact, you're going to be slaves there, says the enemy. I've got a house, right? I've got a plan, and it's going to free you. And all it does is shackle. That's the power of the enemy's lie. To say to all of us as often as he can that God's house is slavery and my house is freedom. And Jesus wants to say, no, no, no. I have, not in my house. In my house, you're a child. You're a son. You're a daughter. You're an heir. In my house, there's freedom and there's the restoration of vocation because that's what Jesus was offering the Jewish people was to rise them up to bear witness, which was the second half of the Passover event. No, you're no longer slaves to Pharaoh. Now you can bear witness to the one true God. And see, that's what Jesus was coming to do. He was saying, yes, you're free because of what I've done for you, but you're slaves to sin, and I've come to set you free and to restore order in my house. And the, Pharaoh, the uh, Jewish leadership 
said, no, we don't want that. We will remove the source of the conflict. And that's what the enemy is trying to get us to do too. You know the source of the conflict? Your life would be so much easier if you just wouldn't, if Jesus were not there. Doesn't he cause you all kinds of problems? Look at your neighbor. They're, they're just making money and having fun, you know. And, and here you are messing around with your sin nature. Like, that, you know, the enemy, that's what he will do. He will get in there and he will tell you all kinds of things to make the Father's house seem uninhabitable. But the Father's house is glorious. And so this is an amazing metaphor that Jesus gives right into the, Pharaoh, into the, into the uh, Jewish leader's lap. He says, look, I'm gonna tell you a story about a house. It's a feast of booze. It's my house. It's a house of liberation and freedom from everything that harms. It's so beautiful. And you will see this metaphor of home and house cropping up all the way through the Gospel of John. It's in our Lenten colic that Father Eric composed for us that our hearts and our homes would become houses of joy. Why? Because Jesus dwells there. That's why. And that's what Jesus was offering. So I want us to, to kind of move into this now in a personal level. A personal level. You know, I, I don't know if you ever had siblings and were given the opportunity to babysit them for the first time. This is kind of like the Jewish leadership. Now, Steve, you're, you're in charge of your little brother. All right, we're going out. I'm like, oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. Bye. You know, I got it covered. You know, bye. All right, now it's time to punish little brother. Do the dishes. Get, get out of here. I, you can't watch this movie. I'm going to watch this movie. You go to bed early. It's time for bed. It's only 7, but I, you know... <clears throat> This is what the Jewish leaders were doing, and this is what we do when we set in through deceit. All right, we get the wrong idea of what it's like to be in our house. And what happens is Jesus came in and he said, I have an authority of this home and it's good. But the deceitfulness comes in and says, hold on just a second, I wanna do things my own way. And you can see what the fruit of this. It's hard to know when we're being lied, when we're believing lies. How do we know that we're believing a lie? Well, you can see a little bit of it by watching the engagement with the Jewish leadership here. All right, what's the fruit of deceit? You can ask yourself this. The fruit of deceit is anger, withdrawal. I'm just checking out here. Criticism. Oh, you're going to find the problem somewhere else. All right, not here. We're children of Abraham. No, this is not my problem. Um, addiction. Major self-medication. There's a problem, but I'm just going to make it feel better. Or anxiety. Just churning and churning and churning. Fear. These are the fruits of deception. It means that somewhere in there we're believing something to be true and it's not. And obviously we're not made for that. We're not made to be lied to all the time, even if we're lying to ourselves. That's the fruit of deception. It's what happened to Adam and Eve in the garden. It brought conflict. It brought uh, shame. It brought exile. It brought 
dysfunctional family structures, a lack of peace, you can know a tree by its fruits. And if that's the reality that we're living in all the time, it's probably an indication that, hmm, something's not right there. Here's another way to know, and that's when, when Jesus says something true and you don't like it, and it happens to all of us, all right, so I'm not pointing the finger here, it again uncovers. What if, what if you know, the Jewish leaders had been, and that, it did happen. Jewish leaders said they were cut to the heart, the Bible often says, and they repented. Cut to the heart and repented. The fruits of abiding in the word as Jesus says, um, the fruits of abiding in the word are what we know the fruits of the Spirit to be. Love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, kindness, self-control. That's the fruit of truth. And when you abide in the word, when you let the word dwell richly within your heart, you will find the rooting out of lies and you will find the restoration of the fruits of the Spirit and you will benefit from a house that is in godly order because Jesus is authoritative there. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life and he will not lead us astray. So I want, us, I want to conclude here just by giving us some things to, to, to think about and ponder and to challenge ourselves. First of all, we're not to fear the enemy, all right? We're to respect the power of deceit, but the, Jesus is not asking us to be afraid of him or to take matters into our own hands, all right? We, we can't take the log out of our own eye all the time. We can be sober about it. We can be confessional and repentant and humble. That's really important. Right, so when the Lord begins to work in that area of deceit, listen. Let him bring forth the truth of what he's trying to guide you into. Rely on the ministry of the Holy Spirit, which comes through prayer, through the word, and through brothers and sisters. But I want us especially to do what Jesus calls us to do, which is to abide in in his word and, and to let his word saturate into us. Abide means to learn. I, I, this is interesting. If this applies to you, you can take it. If not, don't worry about it. But I, I heard somebody say, you should expect, this is a pastor speaking to pastors, expect people in your congregation to know the Bible as well as they know their job. That was kind of an interesting posture. Right? Some people have lots of time and money to go to schools and learn all about, the, all about the Bible. Not everybody has that. But you know something well. There's something here that everybody knows really, really well. The Bible should be one of them. Whatever you know well, know the Bible that well. I was like, wow, that's an interesting way of, just think about it. It's God's word. It's as important as anything else you do. That's what this pastor was trying to say, and I agree with that. Let the Bible be one of the things that you know as well as you know anything else. Love it. Love, love. It's love scripture, love Jesus. Let love be a feeling that you feel, is the point. This is what it means to abide. Adore. 
adore, cherish, listen. And another translation of the Greek, remain. Stay there for a while. It's hard for us to do in our modern, modern world. In there, you know, if you experience a point of contradiction like the Jewish leadership did that reveals a counter-narrative or a lie, ask God to remove that. Let him be the authority in your life. It's a point. Let him reframe the picture for you. Oh, I love how he did that. I'm gonna tell you a story of a house and a son in that house and a slave. What a great way of framing it. Let him frame your life, and when he does, obey. Don't hold out against him. Dwell in the house of Jesus Christ with him as your Lord and Savior, and you will find yourself being set free. You will find yourself dwelling in the presence of the Holy Spirit, and in fact, you will find a life that you couldn't have found on your own, and you'll be able to to bear great fruit for the kingdom. Amen.